As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, you're listening to the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast, a show that focuses on football tactics, on tactical trends and the use of data in helping us better understand the game that we love. I'm Ali Maxwell. I've got Mark Kerry with me. Hello, Mark. Hi, Ali. Glad to be back. I am not the Athletic's in-house statistician, but I reckon you might have got close to breaking the record for number of articles released on one day, uh, on deadline day. <laughs> I, I think I counted at least five with your name on the byline, of course, often in collaboration with other Athletic writers. And from the looks of things, trying your best to, to help fans learn more about the players that they signed and where they may or may not fit into their team. Yeah, it's just a case of giving an overview to the fans at, at this stage. Hopefully we'll do more stuff when the the players actually had a few games um, for their respective new teams. But yeah, there's been a lot to to kind of get through. Um, Looking forward to a bit more sleep soon. But uh, (laughs) no, it's it's been a fun one. Transfer, you know, the transfer window in general was was fun. Being in the office as well on transfer deadline day was quite something to behold. So uh, yeah, really enjoyed it. Michael Cox is here too. Hello, Michael. Hi, Ali. Hi, Mark. Uh, Tell me, how was Totally Football Show live on Tuesday night? Uh, yeah, it was very pleasant. We did uh, a live show for the Totally Football Show, which regardless of there being in, uh, anyone in the audience, was our first in-person pod for two years. And uh, we had 400 people came along to see us at uh, Leicester Square Theatre, which is a, a lovely theatre in uh, in central London. And yeah, it was just very nice to see people and, and see uh, see so many listeners. It was great. It looked great fun. It's certainly something for us to aspire to, I think. Uh, also, I noted from the pictures I saw on Twitter today, you were the smartest dressed of the panel by quite some distance. Did they stitch you up with the with the dress code? Or no, I think it's it's the dumb thing to dress up reasonably smart. And and uh, Duncan Alexander and Julian Laurent came along as if they were tracksuit type <laughs> numbers. But I bet if you were doing a live performance, you'd be very smart, Ali. I think you're in my camp for this one. Possibly, possibly. Maybe we'll find out one day. Uh, look, before we get into our, our topics, and it's a two-topic week on the pod this week, I want to ask you, Michael, about Everton, because it's been a very busy week for them. I dare say they're the sort of club we might look at in more depth when there's a bit more water under the bridge, the bridge being 
Frank Lampard's tenure in charge. That doesn't make sense at all, but I think you know what I'm getting at. It's been a week of arrivals, Frank and Delhi and Donny. What do you make of Everton's appointment of Frank Lampard? What might we expect them to look like tactically? Yeah, that uh, that bridge pun would have made more sense at his previous job, I think, wouldn't it? But uh, <laughs> I very good understand what you mean. I, I, I think Everton's a really interesting situation because I think they... Um, a lot of people are saying that they did very well on deadline day to get in Van Der Beek and, and Deli Alley, and I suppose they did in terms of individuals, even if they're uh, you know two players who haven't played much recently. But I must say, I, I think their situation in the, in the Premier League is slightly more perilous than maybe people have acknowledged. I mean, at the moment, they're only four points away from the relegation zone. They have appointed someone who I don't think has a great track record in terms of his management so far. He did an OK job at Derby and an OK job at Chelsea. Pretty much maintained the level that they've been uh, they've been at previously. Um, so they do need an uplift. Whether that will come from the signings or come from Lampard, we'll have to wait and see. Um, we did do a podcast on Lampard at, uh, at Chelsea tactically. I think he did show some good ideas there. Times good uh, use of kind of changing formations. I remember a, a victory over Mourinho's Tottenham was particularly impressive when he went with the three at the back. Um, but there's a lot that needs to be done at Everton. I mean, almost every department in their side, I think, has, has looked quite uh, quite mm. ropey this season. So I think it's quite a tough job. And, and like I say, I really think they're in a relegation fight at the moment. Mark, have you had a thought about the fit of Ali and, and Van der Beek for this Everton side and, and Lampard as manager? I seem to remember in that podcast we did... Michael, I think Tom spoke about the numbers suggesting that Lampard was very keen for his team to press, but perhaps when you dug a little deeper, the structure of the press and the organisation of it maybe wasn't as as strong as some of the other top teams. So that'll be something to, to keep an eye on. But Mark, what do you make of those signings in particular? Yeah, it was something I was speaking about with, with some of the writers um, only this week of just how it will kind of fit. Um, in terms of formation, how that will, will work. And as Michael said, that, you know, Delhi and Van der Beek haven't had a great deal of minutes. So when you're thinking about pressing and making sure that you kind of got that that high intensity, which will be a move away from from how Everton were under Benitez, you think, well, yeah, how long will it take for them to do that? Because you need kind of more minutes in the legs, get back to to match fitness. So they haven't got time on their side, Everton. They, as you say, Michael, they've got, got to get some points fast um, and really kind of get that transition quickly. So it'll be interesting one to see. I'm interested to see what the formation will be and, and how it will work. But... Uh, just feels like they're just being pulled from pillar to post at the moment, Everton. So <laughs> anyone's guess at the moment. Well, it is, as mentioned, a two-topic week and let's get stuck in. Both of these are inspired by articles on site at the moment that felt right up our street. We couldn't ignore them, really. One of them is a quick chat about the rise and fall of three-man defences in the Premier League. Michael alluded to it on the pod last week and wrote it up in between. Uh, then we'll have a discussion about Receiving passes. That one's based on the big ticket. John Muller's very good article. Uh, Won't somebody please credit the pass receiver? Uh, More detail on that to come. Sadly, John isn't able to join us today, but my dual MCs, Mark and Michael, are ready to chat about what is a, a very interesting topic. Let's start with three at the back in the Premier League, Michael. The rise and fall. I want to start pre-rise really there's there's one name that springs to mind and that's Antonio Conte uh, but before Conte's arrival in the Premier League uh, you've called it dormant really in terms of three-man defences and their use before 2016-17 almost untried at that time for a few years why was that? 
It's a good question, and it's difficult really to answer considering the success of Chelsea in particular, as well as some other sides with that formation in the last few years. But yeah, I mean, I actually calculated these stats by hand. I basically went through each team for each season and worked out uh, who had played three-man defences. And yeah, go back to 2015-16, and that's the year before Conte joined, of course. And there's only one side in the league who played a three-man defence more than four occasions. That was Southampton under uh, Ronald Koeman, who had a really good mid-season kind of change of fortunes when they changed to that system. Uh, the side that used it the second most was Aston Villa, who finished about 20 points off survival, finishing in last place. So I don't think they were ever going to be tactical trendsetters. Mm. Um, but it, yeah, I mean, it's strange looking back. I mean, it's not like we were completely uh, unaccustomed to the three-man defence in English football. Mm. Towards the end of the 1990s, there was a big shift towards playing with wing-backs. England have done it. Uh, on a few occasions under Glenn Hoddle, I thought in, in particular, England were very good when they played that system. But whether it was because English football wasn't producing the right kind of players or whether managers were just tactically inflexible, um, I think it's fair to look back at that season in general, 2015-16, and the overall managerial quality, I think, was was probably not quite there compared mm. to how it's been the last few years. I think of the real two real quality eras of management for me. One was the middle of the 2000s when Mourinho and Benitez came over and joined Ferguson and Wenger. And of course, since 2016, we've had almost every great coach in Europe over here. But in between, I think there were a few managers, whether it was Pellegrini or Manchester United going through some difficult spells. Um, there weren't that many tactically adventurous managers, I would say. And uh, yeah, things have changed a lot since then. And, and perhaps... From the start of its rise, although I've already mentioned Antonio Conte's name, it, it would be unfair on a couple of other managers, and in particular a couple of it, of Italian managers, to just focus on Conte. Talk me through its nascent rise from 2016-17 onwards. Yeah, that's the interesting thing because, I mean, at the start of the 2010s, there weren't that many three-man defences in the Premier League at all. The one country where it was very popular was Italy. And I would say there was three managers who really excelled uh, in that respect. One was Walter Mazzari, who created a brilliant Napoli team that came relatively close to winning the league, and they played 3-4-3. And the other was Francesco Guidolin, who did a really good job at Udinese with Alexis Sanchez and Antonio Di Natale up front. And Conte came after that Juventus and, and shifted to a, a 3-5-2, having initially started with a 4-2-4, as we mentioned in, I think, last week's podcast. And the funny thing is that those three managers then found themselves in English football at the same time. Matt Zara was at Watford. He used it at the start of that 2016-17 season. Um, Guidlin only used it once, and it was actually against Conte uh, shortly <laughs> before uh, Conte switched that system. Actually, it didn't work out in that Swansea game. He actually abandoned the system just before half-time. Um, but Conte was, yeah, the third Italian manager that season to use a three-man defence in the Premier League, and we all know how successful it was took Chelsea from 7th to top and they stayed in, in first position and ended up on 93 points, which at the time was the second most uh, that had been recorded in the Premier League. And when Chelsea started dominating the division, having switched to the 3-5 or the 3-4-3 rather under Conte, and when the likes of yourself started writing about its benefits tactically and why the switch had been so effective. One of the things that you spoke about was how opponents were really struggling defending with a back four against Chelsea's front five. Now, now these are now tactical concepts that 
come quite easily that are fairly recognisable, I think. But as you mentioned at the time, it was so different and so new as to be incredibly effective immediately. It, it made complete sense when you explained it. And it, it seemed quite simple, almost quite obvious, you know, numerical advantages in, in key areas of the pitch. Uh, and of course, quite quickly after Conte uh, adopted it, it became like yo-yos and Pokemon, which gives you an idea of the era I grew up. Uh, it became a, a huge craze, right, for, well, for a good few years after that. Yeah, and, and the interesting thing is that so many managers tried it for the first time against Chelsea because they were so scared <laughs> of their back four being overloaded. So they just matched the system. And I went through and, again, did this all by hand. It was quite time-consuming. But, I mean, that season, Sunderland used a four-man defence for the first 16 games and then switched to a 3-4-3 when they played Chelsea. Eddie Howe's Bournemouth used a four-man defence for the first 17 games of the season and then switched to a three at the back when they played Chelsea. Uh, Claudio Ranieri, I think, had gone 60 games at Leicester with a back four, switched to a 3-4-3 or 3-5-2, actually, when he played Chelsea. So you just see the real direct impact yeah. of having to face Chelsea. And of course, and some do you think teams- on, on balance, it's very difficult to measure because you w- will never have an example of, a, of what would have happened had they stuck with the normal formation. Do you think on balance that was a, a good approach to try and quash Chelsea's threat to match them up, e- even though you know you're not going to be able to implement the ideas as well as as Conte's well-oiled machine. Can you understand why teams did that and and did it work? I do understand why they did it. And I think in general it did work. I mean, a a few of those sides lost. I mean, Sunderland, for example, were were, were pretty dreadful that season and and went down. But, I mean, they lost 1-0 at Stamford Bridge because, you know, they they did counteract some things. Chelsea did well. So, yeah, I do understand it. And I think in general, matching... Just preventing Chelsea from forming that five against four, I think, was really important. And the first side to beat Chelsea in this run, uh, I think after 13 straight victories, was Tottenham, who used a three at the back, or used the same system, um, and exploited a very obvious weakness in the Chelsea side with with the same goal twice scored by Deli Alley. Um, so, yeah, I, I kind of understand why they switched to it. And I think Brawley was quite successful for a lot of teams, including Arsenal who had gone a 1,000 games under Wenger with that <laughs> system and then beat Chelsea in the cup final. Well, Conte leaves after two seasons in 2018, so that's still three and a half years ago. And, uh, you know, the, the craze doesn't really slow down at that point, does it? There's a, there's a few managers in particular that have a real taste for it at this stage, uh, Michael, and a couple very specifically whose three at the back systems have a, a big impact on their team's success, not like Conte in winning the title, but in taking teams such as Wolves, under Nuno, Sheffield United under Chris Wilder from championship promotion to mid-table top half in the Premier League. Yeah, that's interesting because like you say, they came up with that system and have really perfected it before they came into the Premier League. And it wasn't like a, a you know a surprise when they used it. Um, and within those systems, I think they were quite innovative in a way. I think particularly Sheffield United, we've spoken about them many times before. But um, even, I mean, Conor Cody at Wolves is just such an unusual kind of role, almost like an old school sweeper. So, yeah, they were the sides, really, that were kind of, after Conte had gone, like you say, they were the ones who really took up the slack. And um, I think the other one was was Newcastle under Benitez, which was a little bit less innovative and more him wanting to shore up a defence with an extra defender. But, um, yeah, despite Conte's departure, there was a couple of seasons where it was still relatively common to see about uh, between 21 and 25% of lineups featured a three-man defence in the two seasons after Conte left. So this is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. We're currently talking three-man defences in the Premier League. Uh, they were everywhere and now they're mostly gone. Let's touch on the peak and the decline. Next up. 
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So, Michael, with your pen and your paper, an incredible use of your time uh, and, and brain power, uh, you've tracked three at the back systems in the Premier League all the way to its peak last season. What are we talking? Uh, 29.9% of Premier League lineups oh. are three man defence. Um, That's a lot. Quite high. That it's is quite a lot. high, yeah. I mean, we're talking um, Graham Post at Brighton usually used it. A lot of. Um, uh, Leicester's lineups under Rodgers, West Ham under Moyes, um, Chelsea obviously after Tuchel came in. So there's quite a few there. Um, and lots of different interpretations as well. Yeah, I think that is fair to say. I think that is fair to say. I mean, I suppose the caveat here is one, uh, the only side who stuck with it in every game was Sheffield United who finished bottom. And the top three sides between them only used it three times. Manchester United didn't at all. Liverpool didn't at all. Manchester City did it on three occasions. With City, it's fluid enough that they sometimes switch to the back three in possession. But it was, uh, yeah, not particularly popular amongst the top sides until Tuchel came to Chelsea. I, I just want to come in and just say that I'm slightly sweating at the idea of you doing all of this by hand, Michael. But it's very <laughs> impressive, nonetheless. You know, but- you, you know Mark could have done this at the click of like three <laughs> buttons, three clicks of one button. <laughs> yeah, I mean, by by hand is uh, is a slightly generous interpretation. <laughs> it's was, it was very much on, in, in Excel, I should say. No, I'm um, very impressed. But uh, yeah, I'll, no. I'll send you this spreadsheet, Mark. You'll, this, this is quite a nice spreadsheet in my opinion. Yeah, no, I can maybe do something with it. It'd be interesting to uh, to see it. But I think you said within your piece, which I thought was great, that it, it shows just how teams are kind of flexible between games and being able to adapt but also kind of within games as well and it kind of shows the the tactical flexibility but also the tactical understanding now I suppose which I guess kind of comes with the the influx of these managers who are trying to I guess design to educate the players just that little bit more to such that teams can adapt within the game um, two or three at the back however it may be. And I guess a tactical awakening in the Premier League is is great news for a tactics writer, Michael, in terms of, well, interesting stories. It also makes your job a little bit harder when there's, yeah, there's so much in-game tweaking going on. You, you really do have to be on your game just, you know, on a match-to-match basis. Yeah, that is true. Um, and of course, some systems do appear a little bit like a three-man defence, even when they defend with the back four, so Manchester City and Arsenal being obvious candidates there. But yeah, I, I tended to take it as the defensive base of the formation. Um, and yeah, this, this season's been quite interesting in terms of the uh, the line graph of size they've used a three-man defence. It's, it's almost all gone, right? What, what are the reasons for such a sharp decline? Do you think it's lost its, its sort of shine of intimidation in, in its solidity? Or is it a case of once everyone starts doing it, the edge suddenly becomes in trying to do something else? 
In week eight of the Premier League, there were nine of the 20 sides used a, a back three. And then last weekend, or the most recent weekend, because we're in a, a little bit of a mini break, there's only two sides who used it, and two is the lowest for almost two years. So I don't really know whether it's a, a widespread shift away because of common factors or whether it's individual factors within teams. But, I mean, funnily enough, the, the two sides who used it were playing against each other, Wolves uh, against Brentford, who have both used that system throughout this campaign. Um, but, yeah, there's been, there does seem to have been a shift away from it. And, of course, that Spurs-Chelsea uh, game, which I think we mentioned last week, uh, where both sides used a four-man defence, that kind of sums it up because uh, Conte and Tuchel are the two managers that you would associate most with the three-man defence. Well, it certainly hasn't declined in the EFL in the second, third and fourth tiers. About 50% of the, the 72 EFL clubs playing three at the back systems. Um, and yeah, I, I, before we move on, Michael, I wanted to ask you whether the opinion that I hold has any sort of tactical merit. I, I always groan when I see, you know, if I'm watching a game uh, on a Friday night and I see both teams lining up in a 3-5-2, for example, I sort of inwardly grown I, I have this idea that three at the back versus three at the back makes for generally quite a, a boring game and, and of course you know football tactics and what makes a game interesting or boring is is subjective to an extent but do, do you do you think that's a fallacy saying that three at the back versus three at the back is boring I think there's some validity to it I think there's a big difference between three four three and three five two though yeah I mean if you get two three, four, threes against each other. It's almost like individual man for man all over the pitch because they very much match each other up. If it's three, five, two against three, five, two, then both sides have got a spare man at the back. Midfield, there's six players in that zone. It gets quite boggy. Mm. And then you've just got two wing backs kind of chasing each other up and down the touch lines. Um, and maybe there's been a bit of a shift now. You do tend to get more kind of attack-minded, tricky players at wing back. But if you just get converted fullbacks, I think there can be basically a lack of guile on the pitch. So no, I, I kind of I kind of agree with you, Ali. I think in general, regardless of whether it's a three or a four, I think games where there's different systems against one another is always much more exciting. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to to track. I enjoyed doing this article, and I enjoyed doing the numbers despite your uh, your jibes. And uh, the good thing about this was, is the first article I've done that's been cited in a post match press conference. Because I don't know whether you saw this, but after Arsenal, uh, women won in the FA Cup at the weekend. Their manager said, I read a very interesting article today before the game, again, with statistics on three-man defence in, in the men's Premier League from 2015 and, and onwards. And in football, it's general about that. You want to play a game every weekend that you and your players are very used to, but it's a surprise for the opponent. because." They are not exposed to it often. Great that we're we're being read by actual managers. Well, I mean, it didn't escape me, Michael, that you've you've written a best-selling book on the history of football tactics in the Premier League, and in your piece about the rise and fall of three at the back systems, you commented on this having been, you know, one of the 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 one of the stronger trends in recent times. I mean, are you just going to be adding? this as an extra chapter and, and trying to pick up some more book sales you know from this point this feels like an obvious extra chapter doesn't it yeah there, there was a brief discussion about whether there should be an update <laughs> for the 30 year anniversary I, i'd be up for it um, <laughs> i bet you would <laughs> i should i should i should correct you that it's actually not a best-selling book people think that best-selling means just it sold a lot of copies whereas it actually means something very specific which i'm sorry to say my book didn't 
didn't reach that level. You basically have to be in the top 10 in the Sunday Times list in a week to be best selling. So right. I don't want to I don't want to be taking credit. I'm not I'm not due there, but uh, thank you nevertheless. This is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. Uh, next on the agenda with Michael Cox and Mark Kerry. Won't somebody please credit the pass receiver? And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, guys, this was a really interesting piece written by John Muller, who's making a bit of a habit of writing really interesting pieces on the Athletic site. Uh, and unfortunately, John can't join us to, to talk us through it. But there was enough that we found interesting together as a as a trio to think that this was worth a, a discussion on the pod, because as mentioned at the top, it is something that's that's right up up our street. Um, won't somebody please credit the pass receiver? Uh, talk me through it. Michael, talk me through what you found most interesting off the bat and why you thought it was worth a segment on the pod this week. Yeah, I just thought it was a really interesting article. Uh, John's been on the podcast before, so our uh, our listeners will know all about him, but he's doing some fantastic stuff with uh, with data and interpreting data. And uh, yeah, this was a thing I'm not sure I'd necessarily seen a stat for, although the way that John phrased a couple of his arguments, particularly around expected goals, I thought was quite interesting and made me think uh, maybe I have seen stats like this before without knowing them. I think as well from from a data perspective, kind of historically, it does open up that that conversation a bit more about the the dynamic of of the team on the pitch because we we do focus a lot because it's measurable on on events and event data and things that that did actually happen, but not so much maybe on the method by which they did happen um, or didn't happen, I think, but but maybe added value. So things where, yeah, a run opened up space for a, a pass to, to occur, that's really very difficult to, to quantify. So that pass mm. receiver can can have a lot of value, but it's very, very difficult to quantify. And we'll do our best to talk it through <laughs> from what John um, you know has put based on uh, research that's out there. But I think the conclusion before we even started is that it's a very difficult thing to do. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly uh, a, a big task that various people are setting themselves to try and measure the, the skill of pass receiving, I suppose. Uh, it, you know, just rowing it back a tiny bit, that the value of in-possession actions, Mark, and we've spoken a lot about this sort of stuff over the last year or two, that's something that's that's been worked on and refined by, by a lot of different people in this sphere and a lot of different companies and I wondered is is it a bit like a sort of arms race in terms of data in football to see who can build the best models and metrics to measure value of in possession actions 
Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, it seems that there are a lot of kind of different models which are tapping into ultimately the the same sort of thing. Um, and it's kind of largely based around the idea that well, it's looking beyond shots. That's the kind of main thing, right? Because we sort of completed shots now in terms of looking <laughs> at expected goals. We're kind of we're all in agreement that that's a, a good, reliable and useful sort of um, measure of, of shots. But looking at all the other actions that, that go towards reaching that, that stage of shooting um, is super super interesting and super valuable because it actually constitutes a lot of the actions that actually go on the pitch. So there's many models that look at how a player increases or decreases their team's chances of scoring a goal. Uh, essentially, loads of different models that I think was you know has been spoken about on the podcast before. So things like expected threat, um, uh, stats performed. So via Opta um, have something called possession value. Um, stats bomb have something called on ball value. Um, we'll talk today about uh, another model and um, American Soccer Analysis, another sort of organization use goals added, but they all tap into the same sort of thing, as you say, of a model to kind of look to quantify the value that a player has in increasing or decreasing the chance of their team scoring. You don't have to say which one it is, but quietly, deep down, do you have a, fav- a preferred model? Is there one you're <laughs> like, yeah, this is the best? <laughs> It'd be like choosing between your kids, isn't it? You're not allowed to say, even though you probably do. Um, not one I'm willing to to say on air. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I suppose the next question is measuring the skill of pass receiving, therefore not the in-possession action. That is evidently a, a little more trickier and comes back to the age-old question or issue, I, I suppose, of event data versus tracking data, if you could talk us through that. Yeah, I mean, so... As has been spoken about before on the podcast, event data essentially looking at yeah what happens on the ball, so things like passes, shots, tackles, etc. But and don't get me wrong, you know the football analytics community has has come a long way in terms of using event data, and it's unlocked some really interesting work in in the football analytics space. But the way that I've heard it described, which I think is a really good way of saying it, is that event data itself is almost like the equivalent of listening to the the game of football on the radio. Right, like you can only actually hear what is happening when you know you hear the event, whereas you know a lot goes on all around what's you know what's happening in that event. So, you know, almost thinking of it like a spotlight in terms of the event, whereas you know you actually want to shine a light across the whole pitch in terms of what's going on with the dynamic of the team and both teams. So that's essentially kind of what tracking data is, where it looks at you know all of the movement of every player and subsequently the whole dynamic of the team. Um, you know, multiple times per second, which is super useful, super valuable. But there's so much data that you know that is that goes into that that is quite a lot to to kind of break down and simplify, and mm. of course quantify as well. So, yeah, I think John says it really neatly, kind of in the in the piece. But there's started to get you know there's more and more kind of work done in clubs it's starting to reach more sort of public space here and there which is really uh, really good to see but there's kind of examples that i know that liverpool have done which they've sort of shared publicly about things like pitch control which use tracking data really neatly to show if if the ball were to land in a certain spot who would which players would be most likely to reach it and these sorts of dynamic things across the whole you know the dynamic of the team is really valuable and can unlock loads from a recruitment perspective um, and in general sort of our understanding of the game mm. so yeah event data is very popular tracking data is you know it's been around for a long time but very difficult to kind of pass and understand <laughs> um, but yeah it's uh, it's definitely a key question to look at the two 
Just as an aside, you mentioned listening to football on the radio. It reminded me that uh, what one of the few bits of value I can add to these sorts of discussions is that the phrase back to square one, you know where that comes from, Michael? I know where you're going to claim it comes from, but it's clearly nonsense. What? It's not true. You're saying it's this story about how originally in the Radio Times they print in squares and someone would say where the ball was according to what square was. The phrase originates from the days when football was listened to a lot on the radio. To help the listener picture the scene, the pitch was divided up into a grid of imaginary squares, square one being around the goal mouth. Thus, whenever the ball went out of play for a goal kick or someone made a boring back pass of the type no longer allowed, the commentator would groan. Back to square one. Isn't that great? There's so there's so many things I don't agree with here. One, I've seen the grid and I'm not I don't think number one <laughs> squares by the goal mouth. But left second back, isn't it? I I can't believe that anyone really believes it originates from there <laughs> compared to say snakes and ladders or hopscotch where square one is very obviously a thing. In I'm spot- gonna I, I'm gonna I bet the phrase was used before the first football radio commentary as well. I'm going to ask Susie Dent on Twitter. I'm sticking with the story. Uh, Cox, you mentioned XG, which I I didn't necessarily think when I thought we were talking about, you know, receiving passes and trying to measure that that skill. I didn't initially think of of expected goals as something that would crop up here. But but actually, it's quite an interesting part of this discussion and kind of makes you think a little bit differently about it. Yeah, I thought that was a, a really interesting argument John made. The expected goals really, it doesn't have anything to do with the shot, does it? It's all just about getting in the positions to receive passes. When he put it like that, I suppose we have thought about the skill of receiving the ball in statistical terms um, without really knowing it. So I thought that was a very good way to introduce the rest of the, the slightly more complex uh, statistical stuff that, that was uh, mentioned. Yeah, it's it's really, really interesting. Uh, John talks to Jesse Davis, who oversees a machine learning group that works on advanced football analytics at the Belgian university, KU Leuven. Uh, Mark, they've got a metric called VAEP, Valuing Actions by Estimated Probabilities. And that's a, a possession value model, like we've just spoken about. Uh, various other uh, companies and groups have their own versions. But they've now got an atomic version for the purposes of, of what we're discussing today crediting the pass receiver how do they go about this what does this measure well that's yeah that's the key question isn't it um i'll do my best to try and i guess keep it in sort of simple terms um because we don't need to go into the kind of the maths of it but the atomic version essentially yeah breaks it down into to two parts so the actual giving credit to the passer but also the receiver uh put simply so it's it makes sense right it takes two to tango it takes two to actually have a pass otherwise it's just a a loose ball so it's it's just i guess quantifying what we deem to just make sense in general of just quantifying the the person who gets credit for the actual pass itself but the person who maybe moves into a really key area of space to Mm. receive the ball as well that player needs to get credit um so the the atomic version simply just goes a level up from that possession value model uh to to actually credit the receiver as well so if i make a very smart progressive pass punching it through the lines into the feet of mark carey back to goal in a good position and I've clearly, or we, I should say, have clearly increased our team's probability of, of scoring a goal from the previous position. 
are we sharing the credit there 50-50, passer and receiver, or is it a little more in-depth than that? Yeah, my understanding of it is that you don't get a 50-50 split. I think the model is kind of advanced enough to be able to to show, you know, give value more to, to one or the other, depending on the action uh, that you say there, Ali. But I think, yeah, this, this is kind of why it makes sense, right? That if you get, did give 50-50 each time than an example like that where someone plays a really neat threaded ball then there's probably more credit for the passer in one example but if there's someone who makes a really good run in another example um, then they should get more credit as well so if mm. it was constantly 50 50 it would kind of become a bit of a gray area and you wouldn't be able to kind of tease out who's better or worse so that's the great thing about this you know atomic version that you're able to really neatly give credit to to either the passer or the receiver and weighted as such michael have, have you previously spent time thinking along the lines of it, it would be ideal actually if we could better understand the value of off-ball movement uh, and who excels at that and how in their movement a player you know improves the quality of his team or takes away from it is that something that you've previously thought in your own work that it'd be great if we had a, a little well a better measure of this somehow yeah, definitely. I think there's certain players that I've watched over the years who I think their skill really is their appreciation of space and, and how they can receive the ball in dangerous positions as much as what they do with it. I think the player currently who I think of in those terms is Mason Mount, who's absolutely brilliantly intelligent at receiving the ball and finding space. And of course, is is you know a good goal scorer and can pro provide an assist. But of all the players like him in English football at the moment or in the England side, if I've got someone, you know, if I can choose someone to have the ball 25 yards out on the edge of the D in terms of what they can do with it next, I'd probably go for Jack Grealish or Phil Fosen or maybe Bakayo Saka ahead of Mount because I think they're just better in those situations. But if Mount, his intelligence means that he can receive the ball more often than those players in those situations, obviously he's got more opportunities to influence the game. Um, so I think Chelsea actually with, with him and Kai Havertz as well, I think is another one who just reads the play really, really well, understands the opposition and their positioning and how to make runs. I think when those two are playing those support roles, Chelsea have got two players who are just brilliant at that particular skill of receiving the ball. And I think technically, I mean, this isn't what John's article is about, but technically the skill of receiving the ball, I think is more important than ever. You know, receiving the ball, particularly with your back to play when you're being pressed, whether it's high up the pitch and, and you know, when your team is being pressed or because defensive blocks are so compact these days, mm. just receiving the ball is probably more important than ever and probably more valued than ever. As mentioned, they have got the atomic version of their model and we've got some data from them. We've got some charts. We've got uh, the numbers that suggest who is very good at receiving the ball in the Premier League. Mark, who comes out well um, at the top of these charts? Who comes out well in terms of pass receiving value? Well, interestingly, well, the top three are kind of players who you would sort of expect to be, but there's some interesting players on the on the sort of the top ten list. So the highest is uh, Diogo Jota, who for for some time now, especially since he's moved to Liverpool, um, has has been so so brilliant. But, but really, kind of indicative of that, you know, his ability to to receive between the lines, and he's quite a um, determined uh, player. But you know, he's been playing more in central areas as well. But Salah and uh, Mane are both come out in the the top three as well so Liverpool's front three or three of their now front four um, are at the top in terms of their um, pass receiving value but there's some interesting names on there as well so Mikel Antonio is right up there as well Chris Wood uh, up there even Tony 
and Neil Mope amongst uh, the top 10 as well. So some really interesting players. I think the Chris Wood one's an interesting one because it makes sense really kind of as a target man, but it's not kind of, it's almost giving him more credit um, than I think he kind of gets in terms of being that person and that player that you can play off and actually keep the keep the possession going and get it into him and, uh, and build the attack from there. So it shows in the numbers that Chris Wood uh, maybe was the, the signing of the January transfer window. <laughs> Heard it here first. It is interesting in terms of, of the target men on the list, isn't it, Michael? This feels like the sort of metric, you know, it'd be beneficial to them if this became mainstream because maybe we would develop a slightly greater appreciation of, of the sort of work that they're doing. Does that does that mean that with the current stats and metrics that we tend to, to use in the mainstream, does that mean we end up undervaluing target men types? Yeah, possibly. Or maybe think about them in, in different ways. I mean... A lot of the quality of these target men is their ability to bring others into play. I mean, that's what I like about a good target man. Someone like Olivier Giroud, for example, obviously he's not on this list because he's not in the Premier League anymore, but he was never a prolific goal scorer, but he was a target man because he can receive the ball with his back to goal. And it does make it easier, doesn't it? I mean, if you've got a player like that who can receive the ball in good situations, he can loft it into them from 30, 40 yards away from the box. Obviously, there's a danger you can do that too much. That's the interesting thing I thought about this article, that the way that the, the target men come out very well from these, uh, these metrics. And the, the fact that three Liverpool players top the charts, to what extent do we think that's their quality being rewarded in the numbers or reflected in the numbers? Uh, and to what extent you know, might we say, actually, if the top three are Liverpool's front three, then maybe there's team style factors at play or team quality factors at play. I mean, that they are playing in a team with players such as Trent Alexander-Arnold and Andy Robertson, who we know are very good at finding attacking players with very good progressive forward passes. So that's an interesting one to, to think about, Mark. So it kind of just shows that it's a it's a two-way street, right? Like we, we definitely do give credit to Trent Alexander-Arnold because his ability on the ball is is fantastic. But if he's playing a ball and there's there's no one there making the run or finding a pocket of space to receive the pass, then it then it's you know redundant uh, for him to actually pass it and you get far less credit for it. So I think it kind of shows that it's a it's a bit of a two-way street. Um, and it shows just how good these players are at popping up in in spaces and I'm sure we'll probably come on to Roberto Firmino as well but it shows just how good they are in getting into those lucrative areas of space to receive the pass which then combined with the fact that Trent Alexander-Arnold has the the ability to execute the pass means that then Liverpool are the team that they are which you know together they're really strong and it's interesting or rather it's notable that James Rodriguez comes out pretty badly according to this model Michael (laughs) I can't get over how bad the model makes look uh, makes Hamez look. I mean, he is, I mean, just dreadful. I mean, the players around him on that list, I mean, Ryan Brewster and Dave McGoldrick and Colin Grant, I mean, he's worse than all of them by quite a long way, which I find interesting because I thought he was quite good last year. I mean, he started the season brilliantly, obviously tailed off quite dramatically. But, I mean, assuming there's no names missing from that, that suggests he's incredibly bad at receiving the ball, which is bizarre for a player who I think of as, you know, at his best, obviously, World Cup 2014, was just absolutely fantastic at receiving the ball between the lines. Most obviously for that goal he scored um, against Uruguay. And James Rodriguez! He's a star, all right! A shining, glittering star! The, uh, the dipping volley off the bar, I mean, that was a great example of him 
checking over his shoulder and checking where opponents were, making sure he was in the space and getting the ball between the lines. So, yeah, that, uh, I don't know whether Rafa Benitez had access to these graphs, but no wonder he wanted to get him out of the door. <laughs> well, we, we did check with John about this because it, it's, yeah, as you mentioned, it, it was a, something of a, a surprise to see Hammers reflected quite so poorly in this model anyway and and John did say you know it's possible to be a very good player without making off the ball runs or receiving the ball under pressure but it probably isn't ideal uh, and and that James was outstanding at receiving in safe areas and then playing a creative final pass which you know kind of stacks up but rarely did the off-ball work to give his teammates dangerous passing options in the final third or at least compared to to more traditional forwards so that goes some way to explaining it Michael in the last part of, of John's piece uh, we are introduced to someone whose name's pretty well known David Sumter who's the author of Soccermatics and uh, really just to to bring that up as the headline part of his work, overlooks a lot of other th- very interesting things that he's done. Uh, John wrote about some interesting work that David Sumter's doing o- on this topic, basically, as well. Yeah, he's a very interesting guy, David. I've, I've met him a couple of times. And I guess the interesting thing about his work with analytics is he's a bit of an outsider. I mean, that in a complimentary way. But I think his work previously was looking at kind of uh, patterns of animal movement and, and how animals move in herds and stuff and his application of that to, to football and tracking data um, has always been quite interesting and he actually wrote a very good book about algorithms uh, which isn't to do with football um, so yeah his, it was interesting to see his name crop up in this article and, and certainly he seemed to be a, a big proponent of this, uh, this type of metric to measure the quality of footballers yeah, he seemed to be able to offer some quite interesting depth mark and some, you know, different types of off-ball movement and and its value. A lot of different ideas about how to measure receiving skill using tracking data, which I I really liked how it was sort of presented in John's piece. It helps to give a better overview of a player's movement, whether they create space with their off-ball movement by dragging defenders away and disrupting the opposition's uh, defensive structure, or thriving receiving the ball in tight areas, receiving the ball with their back to goal. Uh, Some really interesting work. Yeah, exactly. As you say, those those are some of the key ones. He outlines kind of four different ways to to measure that, you know, receiving skill. Um, I thought one of them, which I thought was really interesting, was the sort of standing still. Simply standing still is is very, very hard to to quantify that because (laughs) you're not actually doing anything. It's the absence of movement that is actually opening up the space. But I, I do find that really interesting. And I read something going back a few years now about how Lionel Messi kind of, I guess, still in his peak was doing that really well. And if not maybe standing still, then then walking and trying to limit his movement while there was kind of almost chaos going on around him and maybe the the opponent's back four, back five, whatever it may be, was shifting around. Him staying still actually ended up opening more space for um, for him to attack and to to work out you know where to to find the most lucrative area. So that's a really difficult one to quantify, which is what John and, and David say in the piece, but one that I find really interesting. Yeah, I remember listening to a radio show probably the best part of ten years ago that was about the use of statistics, and it had uh, Duncan Alexander from Opta on it, and he was alongside I can't remember who it was. It was an ex player who was quite a stat sceptic. I think it was possibly Nigel Spackman, someone along those lines. And uh, this player was was saying, oh, there's lots of interesting things you do with numbers. But the one thing that, you know, you never get with goals or assists or, or running data, you haven't got anything for the measurement of when a player stands still, because that can be really important in mm-hmm. the game. And at the time, I remember thinking, well, you're never going to be able to create a metric for that. Mm-hmm. But 
10 years later, it seems they are working towards that. Very hard to do. Very hard to do, which is what they sort of said that it's the the next thing to to really look at. But I think, and it's it, again, it's in the piece from what David said that it looks to be now that this is just becoming more and more lucrative from a club's perspective and from a recruitment perspective, where we there's more publicly available data on you know all the stuff that we we do enjoy talking about. But this, from a club perspective, is really starting to get a lot of attention for that reason because if you can quantify those sorts of thing and you know pin a number to it can you maybe uncover a player that on the surface doesn't maybe look all all that strong or all that likely to fit into your system but you know drawn out by the data from this sort of tracking data could be like a perfect fit for for your club Michael that anecdote was really interesting because it reminded me of the time that I was listening to a football match on the radio back in the early 1900s uh, before television had been invented (laughs) and this team just kept playing pass back after pass back back to the goalkeeper and commentary thankfully (laughs) was able to explain what was happening by saying back to square one again On a more serious note, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about now at the top end of the pitch in terms of runs that create space uh, and interestingly in terms of you know former footballers it is uh, Gary Lineker is referenced in the piece and you did a whole article alongside Gary Lineker his game in his words when you read this you know the last section of John Muller's piece here that must have sprung to mind for you as well all of the the interesting things that Gary Lineker was talking about the importance of movement as a striker yeah what sprung to mind for me was why didn't the uh, editors hyperlink to that article I did with Gary Lineker <laughs> about it but uh, yeah you're right um I mean, he was really interesting in terms of the art of movement and the art of goal scoring and was quite passionate about, you know, this sixth sense idea. Mm. He, Lineker really hates this idea strikers have a sixth sense, just have to keep on, gambling's the wrong word, but keep on having to get in those positions again and again and again. And if you're there 10 times, eventually the ball will come to you one time. But yeah, he was he was very dismissive of this idea that you can be in the right place at the right time. You've got to be in the right place all the time, I think, was what he said. So do you think, theoretically, he would be in favour of a metric that was able to quantify how good a striker's movement is, how effective a striker's movement is? Or do you get the feeling that for someone of his generation, it, you know, they might prefer this not to be something that you can measure, something a little more, uh, I don't know what the right word would be, but something a little more mythical almost? Yeah, possibly. I mean, it's clear that he, he places big emphasis upon the the value of movement and getting into the right positions whether he would want a statistic for that I don't know I mean I also did an article with Alan Shearer about a year ago or so where we talked about movement and he put a big emphasis upon what he calls the second six yard box so as if there was another you know kind of a a 12 yard box if that makes sense and and getting into that zone Um, and he was he was just talking about how it's all about almost a static position on the pitch you've got to get into and then I put to him the idea of expected goals and showed him a graph that mapped out the expected goals, almost mm. heat map of where you should be. And I said, you know, do you ha- did you have that kind of thing in your head? And he was a little bit more sceptical about the expected goals concept. But there's clearly, a, yeah, there's two different approaches. And I think that they are kind of marrying gradually in the sense that, to be a top-level footballer, you do have to have a kind of intuitive understanding of these things. And if you are a mere data scientist, you're coming at it from a different perspective and you don't have that knowledge yourself. But 
the more that kind of uh, there is work in, in, in terms of these things, in terms of tracking data, in terms of marrying that to the uh, on-ball data, the more actually things match up with what ex-professionals mm. say. A bit like the thing I said earlier about uh, standing still. Mark, do, do you hear anecdotally in your circles about how receptive the very youngest generation of professional players are to uh, this sort of stuff, these sorts of conversations and what they do being measurable in a way that, that previously didn't exist. There's so much discussed in the analytics space about how to translate these sometimes fairly dense concepts, metrics, whatever the word is, and translate them into very simple phrases that, that can be you know, help with teaching young players to be better. Have you heard about a sort of um, a, a greater sense of uh, young players understanding these things and being open to discussing them? Yeah, I think within clubs you can start to see it kind of more and more. I know people who who do work within clubs and they do, they say, as you say, Ali, that from what I know that they don't give any kind of technical terms because you want to just speak football language, whether that's even with the coaches or with the players. I think that there's an understanding that this this data lark is going to continue for a long time and it's only going to improve and, and get bigger. So I think that the players are within clubs are starting to understand it more, but almost don't realise that they are kind of getting more and more data fed to them because it's filtered in such a way that it's just clear and just talking football language. So it has, you know, the the underlying numbers behind it, but they simply uh, are told, you know, just to get into better positions and things like that. And a few examples come to mind. I think James Madison did an interesting interview, I think it was last season now, um, that was speaking with one of the analysts. And I think at the start of this season, uh, Jack Grealish spoke about expected assists, which was a, a massive victory for the, uh, the analytics community. So it shows that it started to be kind of more and more within wider football parlance which I think is is really encouraging for the analytics side of things but um, still a long way to go I think. A very interesting piece uh, one that makes you think a bit differently a bit more in depth about the sport about what matters on the pitch what adds value and how to measure it these are all things that we enjoy discussing that's what we're about on this pod uh, along with tracking tactical trends so today's dual topics have been perfect really for this week's discussion it's been a pleasure and an honor to talk to you guys today mark kerry and michael cox of the athletic and to talk about a great piece from the big ticket john muller i would strongly encourage you to go and read uh, all of their pieces on the athletic site in fact if you head to theathletic.com forward slash tactics you can get a third off an annual subscription today that's it from us goodbye from myself from michael and from mark we'll be back again next week of course so do join us on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. The Athletic.